Good morning. What have we come here for? We've come here to praise. So if you'd like to stand, feel free. If you'd like to dance, feel free. Um, whatever you want to do, do. When every generation, culture, and race comes to praise Him, to praise Him, and join with all creation to seek His face and to praise Him, to praise Him, the Father will be glorified. His children, one purpose, one mind, we've come here to praise. We've come here to praise the Lord When all that has breath sings as one It pleases the heart of the sun We've come here to praise We've come here to praise the Lord As we lift our voice to the King it's honor and glory we bring we've come here to praise when every generation culture and race comes to praise him to praise him and join with all creation and seek his face and to praise him to praise him. The Father will be glorified. His children, one purpose, one mind. We've come here to praise. We've come here to praise the Lord. When all that has breath sings as one, it pleases the heart of the sun. We've come here to praise. Come here to praise the Lord as we lift our voice to the King. It's honor and glory we bring. We've come here to praise. We've come here to praise. We've come here to praise.
God, we give you thanks that you do accept us, that we can fall at your feet, that we can feel your presence. Come this morning and awaken us to your world, to who you are, to who we are in your image. Bless and strengthen each of us this morning as we worship you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning and welcome to Yorkfield Presbyterian Church. We a, extend a special welcome to you if you are with us for the first time today. As you will quickly realize, both the staff and session are on retreat somewhere in Michigan discerning God's call for us as a church and bringing that back as we discern together um, where God is calling us, who God is calling us to be. A few quick announcements, as you may have noticed in your happenings inserts. Uh, Lent begins this week with a special Ash Wednesday service right here at Yorkfield at 730. Um, for those who are available, we invite you to come and receive Holy Communion and for those who are interested, receive an imposition of ashes as well. Our senior high youth invites you to join them for a special worship service this Saturday at 6 p.m. in the catacombs downstairs in the fellowship hall. We also want to remind you that next Sunday, March 1st, one of our Presbyterian missionaries who's in Taiwan at the moment named John McCall is coming to preach, to lead adult ed, and just overall to bring us up to speed on what God has been doing in Taipei. Another thing, dinners for eight are coming up on March 7th. This is a time for fellowship. It's a time to discern God's call for Yorkfield. There's going to be a component of, of thinking about where have we been, what are we now, where are we going. So if you look at the friendship card, which can be teared off of your bulletin, there's a place to sign up, both to host a dinner for eight, I think they're still looking for a couple more people to host, or to attend. We'd love to have you check that off, tear it off, and drop it in the offering plate. And then finally, if you are interested, perhaps in joining Yorkfield Presbyterian Church, we invite you to come to the next, I don't know if it's the next three Sundays. Can someone double check on their happenings? For the inquirers class the next three Sundays is happening and Pastor Mike and Pastor Beth will lead that talking about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be Presbyterian, and what it means to join God's mission in the world. So if you have any interest in that, you could also check on your welcome tab. At this time, would the children of the congregation come forward for a morning lesson? Good morning. 
Good morning. It's like we're all here. Well, this week I've been thinking a lot about space, the physical space we live in, and the fact that we all have bodies, right? We all have arms, right? We all have legs, heads, eyes, mouth. And what's really neat is that God calls us to worship in our bodies, the way our bodies are, what color they are, how tall or short we are. And God also calls us to worship in a certain space, not only the space of our homes or our schools or our backyards, but also in this sanctuary, this building that we gather in called Yorkfield. So I thought it might be a good time for us to stand up together and kind of do a quick tour, maybe look around and see what we put in our worship space and maybe why. So we could start up front here. What, what are some things you notice about maybe furniture that's here or items that are here? Oh, excuse me. What do you see? Like, for example, this. What is this thing? Yeah. It's a table. That's exactly right. We all have these in our homes, right? We eat breakfast or lunch. What's, do you know what the special significance of this table is? It's a tough question, isn't it? We always put this table right here in front because it symbolizes what we do every month here at Yorkfield called communion or the Lord's Supper, where we serve. You may remember you walk up front. Remember you serve the bread and the wine or grape juice. And it's a symbol and a sign of how God is at work. God is offering God's self to us. So this is a really important part of our worship. It's always here. You can see it every single Sunday. And if not, you can ask Pastor Mike where it is. What about over here? Let's, let's come over here. Do you, know, do you know what this thing is? What do you think? Where you get baptized. That's right. There's kind of a fancy name for it. I think it's called a baptismal font. But yeah, you can, you can come up here and look, look inside. Remember, there's, a, there's kind of a bowl in here where we drop the holy water. And when a child is baptized, or even when an adult is baptized, or a teenager... We use this water to symbolize God's rebirth of God's people, to symbolize God's deliverance of God's people, to symbolize God claiming us as his children. So this is another part, and this is always here every single, every single Sunday to remind us of our own baptism. Perhaps many of you are, are baptized. And what else do you notice as we walk over here? What are other things in this room? Lights, that's right. That's light. and, and you notice there are lights like that, right? But there's light coming in from other places too, right? Like these windows. Right? Do you see what's on some of these windows? Are these like your windows at home or are they kind of different? Kind of different. Kind of different. Uh, you, you're right. Yeah, like what, see the, what's there on that stained glass window? A holy Bible, yeah. And there, that looks like a fish, right? That's kind of an ancient... Yeah, there's a cross, too, and then a fish. It's kind of an ancient symbol for Jesus that some early Christians used. Yeah, and there, there are those windows all around the sanctuary. And, and what else? What are these things? Yeah, pews, that's right. And that's where, who, who sits in the pews? People, that's right. Everybody sits in the pews, right? Not just the young or the old or the pastors or not the pastors or... The women or the men, everybody sits in the pews. We're all here to worship God. And there are other things too, like there are things in the back. 
Like that big thing over there in the corner, that's an organ, right? Or this piano. Well, look at all the instruments that our band is playing. We, we use those to worship God. We think that music is a way that we can ascribe worth to God, we can worship God, and we can experience God's presence. So would you sit down with me quick, and let's pray and thank God for this space where we get to worship and all these things that remind us of who God is and who we are. God, we give you thanks for this space, this building where we can worship you each week and be sent forth to worship you day in and day out. Please bless each of these children. Remind us of our baptisms. Remind us of your table. We pray in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Thank you.
today. Oh God, by your spirit, tell us what we need to hear. Show us what we need to do to obey Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Reading is from Exodus chapter 24, verses 12 through 18. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses set out with his assistant, Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. To the elders he had said, Wait here for us until we come to you again, for Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute may go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Our New Testament lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 9, which can be found if you wish to follow along on page 44, I believe, of the New Testament portion of your pew Bible. Listen for God's word to us today. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up to a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, because he was terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Last Wednesday, I had the privilege of teaching in Logos Town, our fourth and fifth graders, who have given me a run for my money this year. They're quite creative and insightful in their participation, and so I thought it might be fitting to ask them what they think of this somewhat confusing, jarring text. So I read it to them and asked 
what do you think? What comments do you have? To which one person replied, why did Peter build three tabernacles? One for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus. Why not build them cars? <laughs> Another student asked, why did Jesus need to talk with Moses and Elijah at all? Doesn't Jesus sort of know everything? I mean, what, what is Jesus gaining by, and what are they doing in the narrative anyway? But I think several of the students, and somewhat myself included, are just a bit confused by this text, which is probably the sentiment of most of us. At first glance, I think it is a bit jarring in the flow of Mark's gospel. I mean, we all know that Jesus taught and healed and taught some quite mysterious parables, and we remember the feeding of the 5,000, and Jesus walking with his disciples and with the big crowds, and, but suddenly, after the famous declaration by Peter to Jesus' question, who am I? Who do you say that I am? Peter famously replies, you are the Christ. Suddenly, Jesus brings his trio of favorite disciples, you might say, Peter, James, and John, up to this high mountain. What could this mean? Mountains, after all, are not the safest place in Scripture or in the Gospels. We heard a text read just moments ago from Exodus where Moses goes up to a mountain and God does give his law, God does appear, but it's kind of an ambivalent place. There's, there's, and I think we can resonate with the disciples who, it says Peter blurting out, Jesus, it's good for us to be here. Can I make tabernacles? The next sentence says he said that because he was terrified. He didn't know what else to say. I think for the disciples, this is a liminal moment. This is a surreal, maybe unrepeatable moment that maybe they wouldn't realize the true significance of how decisive it actually was until months or years later. We've all had experiences like this, right? The death of a loved one, a wedding ceremony of ours or someone were attended, a conversation we had, a book we read that was so pivotal for us, changed the direction of our life. A moment we couldn't really catch all that was happening until after the fact. One such liminal moment for me was at my baptism. I was 14 and was wearing a crimson robe. I grew up in the Baptist church and so had undergone something akin to confirmation to prepare myself to pronounce a confession of faith. And I can't tell you exactly what the pastor said that day. Jeff, he asked me a number of questions along with the other teenagers or young adults who were being baptized that night. But I can tell you that I said I do to all the questions with as much courage as I could muster. And I can tell you that the pastor did say, Jeff, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I can tell you that in hindsight, I didn't know. I couldn't even imagine what God was going to do in that turning point in my life. As I mentioned, I grew up in the Baptist church, and we didn't celebrate the transfiguration of the Lord, which is the Sunday in the liturgical year that we celebrate today. This text from Mark 9 is the typical transfiguration text. There's one in Matthew, there's one in Luke as well, but we're on Mark this year. And it's perhaps for good reason that the church of my upbringing didn't celebrate transfiguration. It's, it's a rather esoteric thing. I mean, what do we really celebrate? And suddenly Jesus, who's taught and done all these things, now something has something done to him. 
Jesus goes up and there's this ecstatic experience. There's dazzling whiteness. There's this supernatural act of God. And the disciples witness it. And yet Jesus says, don't say a word until after I'm raised. What could this mean? Well, this year, as I reread this text and thought about what God is saying to Yorkfield today, I thought that perhaps it's not just about marveling at Jesus, which we should do, and just being stunned, just having our breath taken away by what God was doing in the person of Jesus, but also to think about in what ways is God also calling us to participate in the same sort of transformation that God did in Jesus, that God was doing actually in all of humanity in the person of Jesus. It's easy for us to say, Jesus died, Jesus was buried, Jesus was raised. That's really where the rubber hit the road. But we forget that in the life of Jesus, in his healing, in his teaching, in his forgiving of sins while he was still alive and well, God was doing work as well, retaking humanity, which had been under the powers of sin and death, delivering it, turning it around, and allowing us to participate in the same sort of transformation. But let's dig into the text for a minute. As I said, it's a bit jarring in the narrative of Mark, but Jesus grabs Peter, James, and John, the same disciples who got to be on the inside earlier in the gospel, you know, when Jesus was by Simon Peter's mother-in-law's house, who was sick, he invited just these three disciples. You may remember the story toward the end of Mark's gospel when Jesus is facing the reality of his crucifixion. He's praying in the garden, and he grabs three disciples, Peter, James, and John, perhaps the ones he was closest to. So he grabs these three, leaves the others, leaves the crowds behind, and says, come with me to this high mountain. And Mark's just really straightforward. He was transfigured before them. He was transfigured before them. No attempt at parsing that out exactly. The scientific bent in me wants to know, well, how, well, really, what did it exactly look like? And what preceded it? And did Jesus just say, okay, wait, here we go? Or did, I mean, what, hap- what exactly happened? But Mark just says, perhaps that's not the point. Mark is saying he was transfigured before them. And then he's almost grasping for language to try to depict what's happening. He says, his clothes, interestingly, he picks out his clothes, his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. Probably just implying that this is not the work of a human. This is not someone who's just an expert washer. This is not just run-of-the-mill. This is a supernatural work of God. Then, as I said, Peter sort of interjects, perhaps trying to get, oh, pardon me, then suddenly out of nowhere, Elijah and Moses appear. Now, to get into the mind of the disciples, they're already probably just flabbergasted by by what has happened. They're standing here, and suddenly Jesus starts looking a way that they've never seen before. Their breath is taken away. Perhaps they're terrified. And now suddenly, these figures, whom they've read in their Bibles for centuries, perhaps memorized, but at least we're well aware of these stories, suddenly these people appear. Probably even more frightened at this point. 
But it's important to remember, I mean, Elijah and Moses, I mean, that's really the who's who of the Old Testament. I mean, Moses was, in many respects, kind of the quintessential figure of the people of Israel. I mean, the one who received the law on Mount Sinai, the one who led the people out of Egypt with God's deliverance, the one who almost got, got them to the promised land. I mean, this quintessential figure, the representative of the law. And then Elijah, same thing. This quintessential representative of the prophets. Someone who spoke God's truth to a sometimes corrupt, sometimes feckless people. So they come and start talking with Jesus. Maybe Peter's scared, doesn't know what else to say. Maybe he wants in on the conversation, wants to interject, wants it to last longer. So he tells Jesus, it's, it's good for us to be here. It's really good for us to be here, even if he's kind of trepidating as he says it. Let us make three dwellings. I'll make, I'll make one for you, I'll make one for Moses, I'll make one for Elijah. And then Mark says, well, he didn't know what to say because they were all just terrified. And then again, this narrative is so fast-paced and sparse on detail, we're just told, well, now a cloud overshadows them. So Moses, Elijah, and Jesus now are obscured from view. The disciples can't see what's going on. And then a voice appears out of nowhere. Maybe it was booming, maybe it was serene, maybe, who knows? This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Listen to him. Our ears may hear an echo there of something that happened much earlier in the Gospel of Mark. You may remember at Jesus' baptism, which is depicted somewhat in our stained glass window behind us with the dove descending. You may remember, you know, John the Baptist baptizes Jesus in the Jordan um, as he's getting up out of the water. This dove descends symbolically to show that the Holy Spirit Holy Spirit has now come on Jesus. And this voice appears again, doesn't it? This is my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. And there, it's, it's pretty clear that this voice, or it seems like it's just talking to Jesus. Is it saying, with you I am well pleased? It might just be directed right to Jesus. Sort of affirm his self-identity. But this voice says, listen to him. Listen to him. Third person. So, it's clear here that this voice, God's voice probably, is speaking to the disciples. Is, I mean, Jesus is in, in earshot of it as well, but saying, hey, this is my son. What you couldn't hear when John the Baptist baptized Jesus in the Jordan, you now hear, affirmed for me. Yes, Peter, you said, you are the Christ, Jesus. You are the Messiah. But this is my son. This is my son transfigured on the mountain and suffering on the cross. This is my son. Perhaps a bundle of contradictions as we watch just the paradoxes flow. person who can feed 5,000 allows himself to be killed on a Roman cross. And then finally, verse 8, suddenly when they looked around, the disciples that is, they saw no one with them anymore but only Jesus. So suddenly the cloud vanishes, apparently. The voice is no longer to be heard. And they're left with Jesus. Perhaps they look at him as the same person. But he's been changed. 
He's been changed. Perhaps they're thinking, what in the world could this mean? Perhaps they're thinking, wow, we started out with Moses and Elijah, two untouchable figures, I mean, two very venerated figures, and now we only have Jesus. Perhaps Jesus has come, not replaced, but has been the successor now of Moses, who gave us the law, of Elijah, who was sort of the number one prophet. Now we have Jesus, Lord of both the living and the dead, above the law, above the prophets. And finally, Mark just adds that they're coming down the mountain, and Jesus tells them an interesting thing. Don't tell anybody yet. Don't tell anybody yet. I think it's clear that James, pardon me, I think, it's claim, I think it's clear that Peter, James, and John, at least in Mark's gospel, kind of stumble around. Peter maybe says the wrong thing, denies Jesus, they don't understand. But Jesus did not give up on Peter, James, and John. We maybe remember from Acts of the Apostles, a different book in the New Testament, that Peter, James, and John became remarkable leaders in the church. That God had not given up on them. That God had committed to transform them, just as Jesus had been transfigured on the mountain that one day. There are two other places in the New Testament, both Paul's letters, actually, that this same verb is used. You know, Mark says this very plainly, and he was transfigured before them. That verb has different valences, but it comes up twice, once in Romans 12 and once in 2 Corinthians 3. At Romans 12, Paul's just finished a really long, complex argument about God is faithful despite God's people being unfaithful and finally gets, finally gets to his appeal and says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed same word, be transformed, be transfigured by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And in a similar move in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul's again addressing the church in Corinth and says, and all of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image, same image of God, the same image of Jesus, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. When I think about moments like this, I think of my baptism. I think of how in my baptism, although I didn't really have a clue at the time, God was at work claiming me as God's own. In my baptism, God was calling me to a life of repentance and discipleship and mission. I think that God was calling me to participate in Jesus' death and resurrection, symbolically, in baptism. God was calling me to be transformed in ways I could never have imagined. 
So the life of the Christian, Paul says, is a life of nonstop transformation from one degree of glory to another. And so I wonder if on this eve of Lent, when we celebrate Jesus' transfiguration, we're looking now in the church year to Ash Wednesday and then 40 days of Lent leading up to Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday. I wonder if it's not just about marveling at Jesus, which we should do, being stunned and almost terrified by the glory of God that can be made known in a human, but also to think about how even in that moment, Jesus was at work to transform Peter and James and John and how God did not give up on them. So I would suggest that Jesus' transfiguration paves the way for you and I, despite our pettiness, despite our best efforts to be transformed by God. I believe God is still at work. God is still taking the initiative, prompting us to offer ourselves to the only one who satisfies. So as we turn the corner in the liturgical year, facing Lent, perhaps we need to hear the call anew to be transformed by God. To hear the call to offer ourselves to God. It is an aspect of reformed worship, self-offering, time, talents, and resources, sure. But God calls us, even while God takes the initiative, to open our hands, to open our lives, to open our homes, to open all who we are to God, believing that God can transform us, even me, even you, from one degree of glory to another. I think an old hymn by Francis Havergal sums it up better than I ever could. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. Take my will and make it thine, it shall no longer be mine. Take my heart, it is thine own, it shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself, and I will be ever only all for thee. Amen.
indescribable, uncontainable. You place the stars in the sky and you know them by name. You are amazing, God. All powerful, untamable, awestruck, we fall to our names as we humbly proclaim. You are amazing, God has called us into community, a community of self-offering, bearing one another's burdens, of rejoicing when others rejoice and mourning when others mourn. So it's a privilege now to share some joys and concerns from our own congregation with one another. And in a moment, I'll give you an opportunity to add if you have any things to share. A couple of joys to begin. Anita Walker shares that CAT scan results of earlier this week show no tumor on her lungs. So we give thanks to God for this very good news. She had chemo on Friday, and we haven't heard how the blood count did, but if all is well, she will again go in on March 13th. Then she will have a long-awaited chemo break. Another joy and concern as well as we pray for them. The session and staff are on retreat. We give thanks to God for their work among us, for their leadership, and ask that God would give them discernment this weekend. And Barb Gorski mentioned in the first service that the young boy who she's been caring for at her hospital, you may have heard in last week or week before's Joys and Concerns, is doing much better. His name is Joshua. He's a, a premature baby, but is doing much better and has gained quite a bit of weight. Some concerns we raised. Jeff Reddick's brother, Mark, was discovered to have a significant tumor in his chest cavity, 
while visiting the Mayo Clinic for an unrelated matter this week. We ask that you keep him, his wife Marilyn, and son Luke in your prayers. Nancy Wilson has had an outpatient procedure this past Friday, February 20th, and we're told she'll rest over the weekend and be back to work on Monday. And so we pray for her. It's good to see you here today as well. So, A couple other concerns that were raised. Uh, Father Paul Colon, a very dear friend of someone in the first service, is in critical condition. Uh, he's a pastor on the south side at the moment, and we remember him in our prayers. Do you have any to add, joys or concerns, to bring before God in prayer this morning? Yes. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Very good, very good. <laughs> Today, this weekend? Wednesday, wonderful. Wow, wow. Any others? Yes. Well, let's pray together. I invite, if you feel comfortable, to open your palms or even open your hands as we offer ourselves to God in prayer. O oh God of all goodness, how can we but give you thanks for being the gracious and compassionate God who delivered your people out of Egypt, who inspired many to speak truth when they were recalcitrant in years following it, who has stayed with your people, whatever has happened, who came to us fully in Jesus Christ, who dwells with us now in the Spirit, who is always at work, always present, always there to hear, And yet, God, how can we but ask you for your guidance in our own lives, for your grace at every turn, for courage to do what you've called us to do in the mundane and in the grand. Be with us, O oh God. We remember this morning that we are not your only church. that you are at work on this Transfiguration Sunday all over the world, in all ages, in all cultures, in all languages. Give us eyes to see your universal church. We pray for it, God, for its blessing, for its strengthening, for its peace and boldness to speak truth. 
We pray for those parts of the church who are suffering, who are rejoicing, who are indifferent, who are strained, who are confounded. Be present, O oh God, with us, with all of us. We bring before you, God, these joys and concerns, very concrete ways in which you are at work and in which we call you to be at work. We praise you for Anita Walker's favorable news and ask that you be with her as she continues chemo. Rally those around her to have patience and grace as they do what they can to ease her burdens. We praise you for our session and staff who are away today. We ask that they would return refreshed, full of your vision and your goodness. We give you thanks, too, for the Miller's 20th wedding anniversary, for being with them every single day. and for Joshua's good recovery at Barb's hospital. We bring before you concerns as well, God, and ask for your wisdom, ask for your hand of healing. For Jeff Reddick's brother, Mark, and all those who are caring for him, Marilyn, Luke, and others. We praise you for Nancy Wilson and the successful outpatient procedure on Friday we continue to pray for her, for Lori's husband, David, and his complications with surgery, for Father Paul Collin. God, be present, be active. We remember, too, those who are homebound and not with us face-to-face -face right now. Rich, Bill, Arlene, Ernie, Helen, Gloria, Art, Marge, and Mariella, and the many with ongoing health concerns. Help us not to forget them, God. We commit ourselves to you as we are sent out now into your world. We commit ourselves to offer ourselves, not knowing what lies ahead, but knowing that you are good, that you are in the business of transforming us still. Pray in the prayer that Christ taught us together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, earlier I asked you to feel free to dance, and uh, I didn't see anybody dance. But um, this one, at least you can sway with it. So if you'd like to stand up and sway with us on this one. From every mountain 
over the sea. I shout out your name, Lord, and you're here with me. When your spirit calls, it sets me free. God's light is indeed shining. Maybe sometimes bleak, but God's light is here. In life and in death, we belong to God. On this Transfiguration Sunday, let us remember that perhaps God is calling us to participate in it by offering ourselves to God, by going out in the world now, in the daily run-of-the-mill, morning, afternoon, and night, to turn to God, offering ourselves. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you now, this moment, and always. Amen.